When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. Our topic this week is international crime and its connections to international politics. My guest is Miles Johnson, an investigative journalist at the FT and former Rome bureau chief. Miles is author of a new book called Chasing Shadows, which is a fascinating true story of drug smuggling that linked the Italian mafia, the Colombian drug cartels, the Hezbollah militia in Lebanon, and the drug enforcement agency in the US. It's a story that also tells a wider tale of how money, drugs, crime, politics, and geopolitical struggle can all mingle together. So, how deep are the connections between international politics and international crime? We have a bulletin from the Pentagon on the explosion in Beirut at the U.S. Marines' barracks. The Pentagon now estimates that 120, possibly more, 120 American Marines have been killed. 45 of the more critically wounded have been evacuated. Others remain to be evacuated later. The attack on the U.S. Marine barracks in Beirut in 1983 killed 241 U.S. servicemen, the biggest loss of life suffered in one day by the U.S. Marines since the Second World War. One of the masterminds behind that attack was a Hezbollah operative, Mustafa Badreddin, who later became a legendary terrorist connected to an international drugs and weapons trafficking scheme. It's a story that's told in Miles Johnson's book. But I began our conversation by asking Miles about the bigger picture. How has the evolution of international crime trace the evolution of international politics? Well, I think what I have tried to sort of show in the book is that there has been this rise of state-backed criminal groups, which reflect a sort of more fragmented world, a more fragmented geopolitical landscape of sanctions, you know, so-called rogue states. And I think the famous organized crime emergence in the 1990s was very much linked to the fragmentation and breakup of states with the, obviously the case of the Soviet Union and the Balkans. And what we've seen in more recent years is these groups which are more closely aligned or even backed by authoritarian regimes and they sort of operate as, to a certain extent, an arm of the state. And the, the line between criminal enterprise and state-backed enterprise has become more blurred. So to, to zero in on a couple of factors, there's sanctions which make states, in a sense, want to enter the smuggling world because they need to do that. And then they connect with criminals who are good at that sort of thing. And also the breakdown of state authority that creates kind of lawless spaces that makes it easier for these people to operate. Let's talk about a couple of examples. I mean, one that isn't the subject of this book, but that you've written about for the paper, is Yevgeny Prigozhin, the Russian who's very much in the news. So how does Prigozhin span these two worlds, politics and crime? 
Well, I mean, I think he's a fascinating example because, you know, he is designated by the United States as a transnational criminal boss, but he is obviously also backed by the Kremlin and has been used as a foreign policy tool. And so he is this perfect example of a criminal entrepreneur who would not be able to function without the support of the Russian state and is fulfilling in many places, the aims, diplomatic aims of the Russian state, you know, for example, in Africa, but is also enriching himself and engaging in criminal activities. But you have other examples, you know, you have anything from North Korean hackers who are stealing Bitcoin for the state coffers, or you have it with the Captagon trade with the Assad regime in Syria. You have the use of organized criminals by the Iranian regime to target dissidents in Europe. This is something which has really accelerated, I think, in the last 10 to 15 years. And the interesting thing is about all the four countries that you cite there, is that they have all been designated by the US and the West as a whole, essentially as criminal states, you know, Iran, North Korea, Russia. So in a sense, they would, I suppose, I don't know what they would argue, but effectively, because they've been criminalized, they get into bed with criminals, or maybe they always were. I think certainly some people would argue that. I mean, you know, sanctions force regimes to enter into the global criminal shadow economy because you have to source, you know, items, weapons, hard currency. And that's not to excuse these regimes, but, you know, they can't just go into the open market and buy things like they could before. So even on a more micro level, if you expel so-called diplomats from, uh, you know, Western capitals, they might have to interact with different types of characters on the ground to fulfill their aims. And the smuggling element, you know, if you're the Russian state and you need to procure microchips to put into missiles, you have to deal with these characters. The key thing here is that it's not always going to be a case that people who are operating with them are acting in an ideological way. It can just be completely raw pragmatism. It's just a business opportunity. And that's because you know, these wars and conflicts are huge accelerants of crime and smuggling. You saw this in the case of Syria, and it's certainly um, something which we're seeing in the wake of the Ukraine conflict. Yeah. And just back to Prigozhin for a minute. I mean, I don't want to be the man's spokesman, but I guess he would say, well, it's a slur that I'm a criminal. Do you think, however, that it is kind of unarguable that he's involved in what you could legitimately call criminal activity? I think it certainly is. I mean, obviously, Prigozhin specifically, you know, has his his own personal history and his roots in the criminal underworld of St. Petersburg. You know, of course, he was in prison for several years. Exactly. You know, he was a convicted criminal. But, you know, the activities of Wagner are clearly designed to avoid the norms or rules of engagement in a normal sense. So I think it's not disputable that it's a criminal enterprise, but it's much more complicated because there are lots of things going on at the same time there. One of the central stories that you tell in the book is about Hezbollah and how they become connected to this world. And it's a fascinating global little story because it brings in Europe, the United States, Latin America, the Middle East, all connected. But in a way, it's surprising that Hezbollah, of all group, should be involved because it claims to be driven by religious fervor. You would think they... Well, maybe it's naive, but you kind of think they wouldn't want to be connected with drugs. But is that wrong? Well, that's a very controversial issue. And, you know, Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, has always very adamantly said they have absolutely no connection to drugs or criminal activity, and it's completely contrary to their beliefs. And 
This book looks at various DEA investigations. That's the US Drug Enforcement Agency. Exactly. It looks into various investigations into procurement cells and connections between drug traffickers and Hezbollah-connected figures. But there was a big debate inside this sort of US national security establishment for a while about that issue. You know, the DEA was frequently getting into sort of running battles with other agencies who said it's impossible. For those reasons, it completely clashes with the ideological and political aims of the movement. But that said, terrorist organizations in every context are extremely complicated and not always centrally commanded and disciplined. You know, and there are always people running their own side hustles. You see the sort of element of corruption seep into all of these organizations. But also, there's a pragmatic element where Wars, and in the case of Hezbollah's involvement in the Syria conflict, are vastly expensive and require new forms of funding. And so there was a very large rise in these sort of US DOJ cases at the same time as the Syria conflict. And so explain to me and to the listeners, the guy that I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Mustafa Bedradin, who was he and how does he feature in the story? So he is a fascinating character who started out in his teens in a Lebanon, you know, which was suffering in a horrible civil war. And he has always been overshadowed by his cousin and brother-in-law, Imad Mugnir, who is much more famous. He's one of the most famous terrorists in the world, I guess, after Osama bin Laden. But Mustafa Badruddin had a very, very long career. He first started out in 1983 with the Marine barracks bombing, but was then arrested very soon after that for trying to stage a series of attacks in Kuwait. He was tried, charged, put on death row. And then through chance, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, he emptied the prisons and he was free. And then he sort of rejoined his cousin, became very senior and important in that movement, and then became sort of internationally notorious again with the assassination of Rafiq Hariri in the early noughties, the Lebanese prime minister, in a car bomb in Beirut, which there was then a United Nations special tribunal for Lebanon, and it took many, many years to investigate this crime, and eventually all of the people were convicted in absentia. But it meant that he had this extremely long, decades-long career, which is quite rare, really. You know, it's obviously a very risky profession, and uh, so the fact that he survived so long is quite remarkable. And then how does he then come to the attention of DEA agents sitting outside Washington, D.C.? The DEA is this interesting organization. This is, it has offices around the world and has this vast network of criminal informants. And they always sort of started to track money laundering activity from Colombian cartels, which was usually going into Europe, but also other places in the world. And they saw that this money was moving into Lebanese banks and trading houses in Beirut. And this trail started to link into extremely senior figures in Hezbollah, people who have been sanctioned by the U.S. government for being top financiers for the organization, members of its sort of top military council and things like that. And this, as I said, was all happening at the time of the Syria conflict. And Mustafa Badradin was, for a period, the sort of main Hezbollah leader in Syria in charge of defending the Assad regime from the insurgency. And without wishing to give away the end of the book, how close do the DEA get 
to, in fact, engaging with Hezbollah and with Badruddin. Pretty close. You know, eventually when these investigations come down, you know, they really reach up into the highest levels of the organization. You know, people who are blood relatives of some of the very top people in the organization, they have a pretty substantial amount of evidence to also show the strategic nature of these cells, you know, because, you know, by laundering money, you might not actually really care where the money is coming from, but you have a customer in the case of a large European drug trafficking organization, which is just building up this massive pile of cash in Europe from selling cocaine they're buying from Colombia, and they need to get that back to Colombia somehow. So if you you have these procurement sales, you will take that money for a fee, call it 15%, 20%, and then sort of at the same time are engaged in complex trading of sanctioned oil from Iran and also procuring, you know, large amounts of Russian weaponry to send to the Assad regime. It all gets sort of to a quite high strategic level in the end. And the reason I suppose it happens or the the set of circumstances that allows it to happen is that Lebanon is a pretty rackety state. Hezbollah is arguably the most powerful force in that country, some people say. And so if you're looking for a banking system through which you can launder the money, then Lebanon's quite a good option. Absolutely. And I mean, people who know a lot more about Lebanon than me will focus on the fragility of their banking system, what we've seen recently with the central bank and just the really quite tragic collapse of institutions in the country. That was what at the start sort of enabled and encouraged this inflow of cash. Yeah. And another of your postings was in Rome. Yes. So is that where you pick up another key element of this story, which is the role of the Italian criminals in their connections with Colombia? And that's where this begins to open up. Absolutely. It sort of forms this sort of triangle in this sort of a globalized drug trade where you have organized crime groups in Europe, you know, in this instance, part of the Italian mafia, specifically the Calabrian mafia. You then have them buying large shipments of cocaine from Latin American cartels, specifically in Colombia. And then you have the facilitators, the service providers who are helping move this large amount of money around the world, which is when you come into specifically this Lebanon-based money laundering cell. The Italian story is sort of one of many. In this book, that's the focus, but there's been this explosion in cocaine trafficking in Europe in the last decade. Europe is close to rivaling the United States as an overall market for cocaine. And that is very much part of this story. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I I come across it in other areas in politics. I mean, suddenly... The Netherlands, which one thinks of as a very stable country, organized crime connected to cocaine trafficking seems to be having a real impact on that country. Absolutely. I mean, it's very shocking. As you say, we, you know, we think of um, the Netherlands as the most stable of Northern European democracies. And there are certainly events which have shaken confidence in civil society there. You know, the assassination of you know, prominent journalists, the murder of lawyers and witnesses and things which were unimaginable. But a really interesting part of that phenomenon is how globalized it is, because these are kingpins who are not based in the Netherlands. They're based in other places. And the logistical complexity of that is something which we haven't seen before. That was not possible in the 1980s. Yeah. And so tech, in a sense, which is enabling all forms of globalization, is also a big enabler of international crime, is what you're suggesting. Absolutely. I mean, one of the key features which enabled all of this is the rise of sort of encrypted messaging systems. And in the case in Europe, you've had lots of almost sort of tailored, private encrypted platforms, which criminals have used as a select group of subscribers. It wouldn't be Signal or WhatsApp. It would be a sort of special system where they use that to send messages securely. They make modifications to the phone, so they are less susceptible to interception by law enforcement. And there's been a number of very prominent cases in Europe where law enforcement actually infiltrated these platforms. So 
it's this sort of interesting paradox where because of these platforms existing, you can now run a vast international drugs empire from a villa in Dubai, for example. Is that a chosen location, prominent location for organized criminals? Several of the most notorious European kingpins have been located in Dubai and several have been extradited in recent years. And there are a number of sanctioned uh, individuals who are there now. So, you know, these are people who are labeled international crime bosses by the US government, and they are able to run an empire in that way where they feel more protected because they're further away. You know, it's much harder to last if you're ordering all of these murders in Holland and you're based in Holland, the Dutch police are going to come and get you very quickly. So you have to be out of reach. And Dubai doesn't have extradition treaties? There have been some important developments in extradition treaties bilaterally between Dubai and different European countries. And there have been several high profile extraditions. So, you know, a very prominent Italian crime boss was extradited to Italy a couple of years ago. And, you know, you've had several extraditions to Holland, but it's tricky. You know, it it takes a lot of work. And, you know, the harder thing is, is that building cases against these people isn't that easy. If you're using encrypted messaging platforms, before the first step was just breaking the encryption, which a couple of years ago, not actually that long ago, was very, very difficult to do. Once you do that and you're into the system, you have this amazing insight into how these organizations are working. You know, police will see the history of murders being ordered in the same way that someone would order a pizza or something of Amazon. I mean, it's really shocking. But the hard thing is linking the anonymous username to a person. And that's very, very difficult. And so building these cases is very, very complicated. So who is doing it? I mean, in the book, it's the Drug Enforcement Agency. Are they, along with, I guess, the FBI, the main pursuers? Or is it Interpol who does the work? Collaboration between different national police forces has become extremely important. Everyone has realized that you can't fight, for example, an Irish criminal group based somewhere else by just focusing in Dubai. I think a lot of these police forces have started to work quite closely together because there's so much overlap. It's just impossible to fight a modern transnational criminal organization by just focusing on your doorstep. And so that has helped a lot. Historically, the DEA has been quite proactive. They have built cases in places like Europe, which have been very high profile and very effective. And they share a lot of information. And they have new capabilities or relatively new capabilities to do things they couldn't do before. But it's a sort of cat and mouse game. Every time someone makes a big breakthrough, the criminals adapt. You know, this is still a sort of marketplace where there's sort of these entrepreneurs who are coming up with new models. Yeah. And do you think the DEA itself is losing interest in all this? Because in a way, the book's very contemporary, but it's also a sort of period piece from a period when America was waging the war on terror. And this overlaps with the war on terror. It's very active in the Middle East. Is this still the way they're doing things? I think that's a really interesting point in the sense of at this moment, you know, where the book, as you say, sort of focuses on, you know, it has its origins in those years immediately after 9-11, where the DEA is given new powers as part of the overall context of the war on terror to go after narco-terrorism and, you know, the sort of connections between drugs traffickers and terrorist organizations, and emboldened and given new capabilities, access to things like signals, intelligence, and sort of the boundaries between types of intelligence operations and law enforcement being broken down more as a reaction to what happened in 9-11. They go after these sort of international supervillains. 
you know, vicked about being a famous example, you know, the Russian arms trafficker. He was arrested in Thailand, wasn't he, Victor Bout? Yeah, so Victor Bout was a famous Russian arms trafficker who was seen as untouchable by lots of people in the US government at the time. He was presumed to have protection from the Russian government. And the DEA went after him and the whole operation took sort of seven months. And they arrested him in a hotel room in Thailand in a sting operation, brought him back to the United States. He was convicted. And it really surprised people. And it was very much a moment where you had the DA acting as sort of world police. And that is something which is not going to happen now. You know, we now live in a post-Iraq and Afghanistan world where there was a huge amount of war fatigue amongst the US population. You know, we obviously still have the effects of the 2008 financial crisis. The entire geopolitical moment has changed. And Victor Bout, of course, was traded by the Americans to get the American basketball player Brittany Griner back out of Russia. The DA must have been infuriated by that. Yes, I mean, I know people who were very directly involved in that operation, and they were really, really angry and upset and said that it set a terrible precedent because, you know, you have this sort of hostage diplomacy, which we're seeing increasingly, you know, with the terrible detainment of Evan Gershowitz, the Wall Street Journal reporter, and many other people. You see this with Iran as well. Yeah, I mean, I remember discussing the trade with somebody in the White House. And, you know, they said, oh, well, you know, Brittany Griner would have spent her life in prison and et cetera. But they seemed to me pretty shamefaced about it because you don't have to be a genius to see that you incentivize this kind of hostage taking. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely been this shift where increasingly sort of valuable targets are traded fairly openly and are sort of expected to be traded. I think it reflects a shift inwards, both in American politics, obviously, and also sort of more broadly reflected in US law enforcement, where with things like the opioid crisis, the fentanyl crisis, there's been much more of a focus on what's happening in the United States, and understandably so. And there have been voices saying, why are you off doing these things abroad when you should have been focusing on what's happening on your doorstep. Yeah, although it's interesting. I mean, I was in Mexico earlier this year, and when I was there, a lot of the headlines were about the trial of El Chapo, who was in the US, who was a Mexican drug kingpin, who, in a sort of Victor bout like way, had been arrested and was on trial. So they're not totally out of that game, are they? No, no, no. I mean, they're certainly still very active, uh, especially in Latin America. But I think some of the more adventurous operations, going after people who sort of very politically connected operators in this shadowy world of intrigue, frequently weapons traffickers who were later revealed to be assets for various foreign intelligence agencies. And when they arrest them in these dramatic sting operations, they cause these huge diplomatic incidents. And they had this sort of reputation in some quarters as these sort of cowboys, but in other quarters as these very effective people who were getting things done that others weren't. And what's your view about the war on drugs and what the DEA kind of people you write about in the book, were doing. I mean, in some ways, they're very impressive people. They're putting stuff together, great patience and investigative power. But there's always been this gnawing question that, okay, you arrest Victor Bout or whoever, but that you may be losing the war, even if you win individual battles. I think it would probably be broadly acknowledged it's impossible to win a war against drugs. You know, it's a sort of a war which cannot be won. Whatever you do, however much resources you pour into it, there will always be drugs traffickers and always people taking drugs. I think you can separate the need for international coordinated action against serious transnational criminals and you know, other bad actors with 
the broader sort of policy of the war on drugs. And I think if you don't have an effective international deterrent against these sorts of new types of hybrid actors, then there will be spaces in the world they can operate in and get stronger. So I think it would be a shame to discredit everything that they did because of a sort of broader policy failure. Yeah. And I mean, I get the sense talking to you that we're going to see more of the kind of thing you're writing about in the book, because particularly with Russia now essentially an outlaw state, desperately needing all the money and the weapons, etc., etc., plus microchips, whatever. They're, they're in the smuggling game now. They are a country that has very few scruples. So I would have thought their connections with international crime are only going to grow, yeah? Oh, I completely agree. I mean, let's, there's a division within the FSB which is, specializes in contact with foreign criminal organizations. I mean, this is an important and always has actually been an important part of the sort of broader strategic toolkit. But as you say, the need in a world where if your access to things you need is cut off and you are effectively severed from the Western financial and trading system, you have no choice. Where else are you going to get your things? So I think we're going to see definitely a rise in that. And it will be interesting to see how it compares to sort of, you know, the old Cold War model of smuggling. I mean, it's always been there. It's just we're going to see it in a different form now. Final lot of questions just uh, about journalism, because, you know, people might say, well, Gideon Rackland works for the Financial Times, Miles Johnson works for the Financial Times. They must do roughly the same thing. But when I read your book, I think, wow, Niles is doing a kind of journalism I just don't do. I mean, how do you dig into international crime, which, you know, obviously, they tend not to answer your calls? Uh, how, do, how do you find out about this stuff? So the great benefit of writing about crime is that you have criminal cases which then are put in front of courts and produce vast amounts of evidence, you know, written evidence. And frequently you also have these cases which are built over many years through wiretaps, environmental intercepts, you know, email intercepts. So this body of evidence that can be built around these people in these cases to convict them provides a vast and very rich seam of journalistic material. And so you start with a sort of a narrative, you know, all criminal cases and all criminal careers in the end are a sort of narrative story. And in those cases being presented to a court and you then obviously have the other participants, you have the law enforcement agents who pursued those cases and their own personal drive to do that and their motivations. And so it's a sort of combination of talking to people on both sides of the fence. And you really do get a very interesting granular bottoms up insight into the lives of these people who operate in this weird shadowy world, which we can't normally see. So yes, you can't call up a PR or read a press release from a crime organization. But you can, after the fact, get a really, really detailed insight into what happened in that organization, which you can't in many other walks of life. Yeah. And is it without wishing to be melodramatic about it, but I would be a bit uneasy writing about some of these guys because they're pretty ruthless. As you say, journalists have been murdered and so on. Do you worry at all about the security aspect? I think there are many far, far braver journalists than me working in far, far more difficult situations. Yes, of course, these are dangerous people. And of course, anyone has to be sensible and take sensible precautions. But I think just compared to the bravery of journalists working, for example, in places like... Russia or Ukraine or in other parts of the world, I think is incomparable. That was Miles Johnson ending this edition of the Rackman Review. Thanks for listening and please join me again next week.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.